0: Welcome to our podcast about leisure, work and well-being. In this podcast, we explore what we can learn from our experiences of engaging with leisure seriously and from the vast literature on the topic of serious leisure. My name is Petia Petrova, Associate Director of Academic Practice. I am based at the University of the West of England in Bristol. We often refer to our university here as UWE. I am your host for today's podcast. Before I introduce our guests today and the fascinating stories we have to hear, I just need to alert you that during this recording, my computer was infected by voice gremlins, which means that there is a little bit of a hissing noise every time I ask a question. Fortunately, most of what you hear next are the fabulously narrated stories and experiences by our guests and these are clear in both the explanation but also in sound quality so hopefully um, the little sound distortions in my questions will not um, affect your listening and your enjoyment of this
1: podcast
0: I'm joined by our regular podcast contributors, Kat Branch, uh, who is the leader of the UE Center for Music. Welcome Kat. Lovely to see you today. And of course, we are joined by Dr. Sam Elkington from Teesside University. Sam is our resident podcast expert on the topic of serious leisure, and he's also the co-author of the Serious Leisure Perspective book. Welcome, Sam.
2: Afternoon, all. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We are very excited today to welcome our two guests who are bringing quite a unique and interesting perspective to our podcast series, something we haven't talked about before. We are joined by Amanda Headley-White, Uh, Amanda is a student caseworker at our Student and Academic Services.
3: Welcome Amanda. Hi, thank you very much for having me on.
0: We are also joined by Dr Alison Miles. Alison is Senior Lecturer in Organization Studies at the Faculty of Business and Law. Welcome Alison.
4: Thank you very much and hello everybody.
0: As usual, we are going to start with the professional roles and backgrounds of our two guests, because these often provide quite an interesting setting for what we're about to discuss. So Amanda, would you tell us a little bit about your professional role, please?
3: Yeah, so my professional role, well, I've been at UWE for about four years. Previously to that, I worked in the mental health sector, and then I decided to make a complete change and work in university sectors. I currently work in the student casework team, and we deal with um, complaints, conduct, fitness to study, professional suitability, and academic appeals, Um, so kind of all the things that we wish didn't happen in a way, (laughs) Um, but I find it a really interesting job, it's sort of different every day. there's a lot of problem solving so a lot of it's about how we keep students at university how we enable them to carry on studying how we resolve complaints so whilst it's yeah it's sort of the dark corners of the university in a way it's also really interesting and very satisfying so yeah I enjoy it. Thank you, Amanda. I think that might be a topic of another
0: podcast, just discussing um, <laughs> discussing your, your, your job and, and what actually that, that involves. Um, and it is great that it also involves a lot of work on how we support students to stay on and succeed. Um, we are also joined by Alison. So, Alison, would you tell us about your professional role and background, please?
4: So um, as you said in your introduction, I'm a a senior lecturer here um, in the organisational studies cluster. Um, So I spend most of my time looking at issues around leadership, change and entrepreneurship. Um, And obviously the change bit at the moment is uh, very topical. Um, We can't get away from change even if we want to. Um, And so I I work predominantly with students all levels, so first year, second year third year and master's students and um, but I'm also having a lot of fun at the moment um, with a couple of projects with uh, the Federation of Small Businesses actually um, and small businesses around the southwest uh, which is which is really interesting it's a very different perspective uh, than, than the student ones. so that's what picks up most of my work time I've been at uh, UE for Oh, two and a half years, although I seem to have missed the last year like the rest of us, I think. <laughs> um, prior to that, I was at Plymouth University for six years. Did lots of things before that, but I won't go there. Otherwise, we'll take up the entire podcast. Thank you, Alison.
0: Um, and, and as usual, there, there's so many questions that I already have about all oh, your interesting work. But we're not here to talk about that. Um, we're here to talk about your leisure pursuits. We often named the leisure pursuit before we start at this point. Um, and we had a conversation about what to name our discussion and our theme today. Um, and our theme is, um, we decided to name it for the moment, Spending Time with Animals. So as I said, quite, quite an interesting tack to uh, all our previous episodes for those of you who have listened to, to these episodes to, to date. And I would like to start with Amanda because Amanda kindly volunteered um, to to take part in this podcast. We have been sending invitations wide across um, the uh, UE um, communication channels for colleagues to step forward and come and talk to us about their serious leisure pursuits. Um, And Amanda very kindly reached out to us and said, I'm actually doing something at the moment I'd quite like to discuss and unpack. Um, And I listened to your podcast and I thought that would be an interesting setting uh, to talk about what I'm currently experiencing. And we're very grateful, Amanda, for for you doing so. So um, I would just invite you to tell us a little bit um, about your story how, how did it begin, uh, and why you, you you kind of you thought this this conversation was 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 useful would would be of interest um, to you, um, and um, the um, I, I feel to, I seem to be keeping this secret. I'm not saying what the story is, <laughs> but the story is basically Amanda. Uh, Amanda has a, a horse she looks after, um, and uh, she spends a fair bit of time with and form. so Amanda just can you tell us a little bit about your story
3: please yeah so just to come on to I guess starting with why I volunteered to be on the podcast like I think I saw the it on the Yammer or something and thought yeah serious leisure what's that and then when I read about it I thought well I spend I don't know how much money because I don't add it up on my horse and I think I calculated probably around 30 hours a week at the moment um And I kind of thought that's quite a serious leisure pursuit um, compared to the kind of pursuits a lot of my friends have. Um, And that doesn't include all the time I spend thinking about it. Um, So I think I've got one of those brains which just has a horse in the middle. There's nothing else in there most of the time. (laughs) Um, So as a child, I always loved animals. I grew up on a small holding till I was five. Um, And then at some fateful point, I went pony trekking and I think like a lot of little girls just became obsessed with horses and ponies um, and insisted that I should have horse riding lessons. I was meant to have piano lessons at the time and I worked out that a horse riding lesson every fortnight was the same cost as a piano lesson every week. Sorry, Kat's probably really horrified (laughs) because she works in the centre of music um, at my pianist career that was lost at that point. Um, So although we didn't really have much money growing up, I road at weekends. Um, And I I think I just spent all my mental energy and emotional energy around horses. I drew horses. I read about horses. I thought about horses. I dreamt about horses. I pretended I was riding horses. I pretended I was a horse. Um, And that was my sort of childhood was largely populated by horses. I always wanted my own horse. Um, I think other children like dreamt of having boyfriends or families or jobs or stuff and I just wanted a horse um and then life got in the way I went away to boarding school um I had some health problems um so horses kind of took a real backseat for quite a long time um certainly like the reality of a horse and the physicality of one day I still thought about them um, and then I decided to start riding again um I think about seven years ago Um, And I can describe it like someone taking a drug where you go and do something and it's like, uh, I have to do this now. I have to get a fix every week. I have to get this every twice a week. And then suddenly just riding someone else's horse isn't good enough. I need to share a horse. I need to have a horse. Um, So I ended up sharing a pony with someone at the stables and then ended up buying a horse when I took redundancy from my previous job. Um, with my redundancy money, um, and then when she that horse Cassie retired just before the first lockdown, um, and I sold her back to her old owner with the full plan that I would have, I wouldn't buy another horse till things were a bit more like what clear was what going to happen with COVID, and that buying a horse mid pandemic was a really really bad idea. And two hours after I sold her, I bought Blossom the next horse. <laughs> Um, which I bought, I'd been planning on buying her from the owners of the stables where I ride. So it wasn't just that I went and saw a random horse in a field and said, here's however many thousand pounds. It was, it it was a bit more planned than that, but it was, um, yeah, slightly quicker than I'd planned. Um, And I think a lot of what I've thought about, about the whole horse thing is that, you know, as a child, you have this fantasy that it's all going to be kind of riding your lovely I don't know chestnut Arab mare on the moors and on the beach and cantering around and it's going to come when you arrive and love you and worship you and then you kind of get it and it's all kind of big hairy cobs and mud and horses not doing what they're told and manure and a lot of darkness and coldness and rain and money and time and and those sort of times you're thinking why on earth am I doing this just why, but I do.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. The question, why on earth am I doing this? I think leads us nicely to our second guest, Alison, and, and her story. I think we'll, we'll hear from Alison's uh, story and then we'll go deep into unpacking what Amanda has just um, shared with, with us Oh, So, Alison, in addition to your full-time le- senior lecturing role... Um, You also own a small farm with your husband that, as far as I understand, includes a bunch of sheep, Mm. some cats and dogs and a couple of horses as well. So tell us how that story began.
4: Thanks, Petra. And I was I was nodding a lot to uh, Amanda's story because it's very familiar um so uh yes you are right we have a 65 acre small holding down in Devon on the Devon Cornwall border and um I work full-time and my husband is a consultant radiologist so he works full-time as well and I started adding up the hours I've never done that before Amanda and I just thought I'm just going to stop now um so we uh perhaps a little bit like Amanda i'd got my first horse when i was um 11 after a similar kind of uh pestering parent story um and kept it on livery and i'd always wanted uh a farm i'd always wanted somewhere just to keep my horses i wasn't particularly expecting to become a farmer i just wanted somewhere to keep my horses we were very lucky we um were looking for a new house just after the foot and mouth um, issues of, of, well, 18 years ago. Um, And because the land prices were at rock bottom, we managed to sell our little two-bedroomed house in Winchester with a very small garden and buy our 65-acre farm. The house wasn't big at the the moment, so we essentially um, bought the land. Richard, my husband, was in the forces at the time. He was in the Navy and he was in the Gulf. So I moved to the farm with my two horses um, and my five-month-old baby on my own in February. And the farm had no central heating, at which point I was thinking, why? Um, I looked at our 10-acre field out the back and just suddenly that realisation of what we'd done hit me. Um, So that was quite an interesting one. Um, we started off when we took the farm over. It was all um arable, so it was it was the farmers that were here before us were growing corn. And we are very we're really friendly with the farmers still there are sorry grandparents. And um we'd been here, we come back from the Gulf, and we'd been here probably coming up to about nine or ten months, and we realized that the problem with sixty five acres is the stuff that you're not growing on it needs managing and needs mowing and my two horses at the time could do a bit of a job on that but weren't coming anywhere near and you could hardly do 65 acres with a fly mow. Um, so we needed something and as we didn't know anything about anything our options were cows sheep, or pigs um the farm had had cows on it previously but we were a little bit nervous really following but math really um so we decided Uh, Had a chat with a a local farmer and came home with a small flock of six Dartmoor grey faced sheep. Dartmoor grey faced are obviously local to us, we're on the edge of Dartmoor. And they are rare breed sheep. So they're carpet wool sheep, which is why they're rare breed because we don't have woolly carpets anymore. And they look like little woolly bears. Um, They're very, very cute, literally. Um, And we were sort of told by the people that we got the sheep from that so we didn't have a dog. Well, we had a, um, a, a Spaniel at the time. Um, and um, so we decided at at, um, at this point that we didn't particularly want to get another dog. So the people that we got the uh, sheep from said, well, if you train them to come for a bucket of food, you can wander them around without needing the, the, the collie. Um, so uh, yeah, so we sort of really went from there. Uh, sheep followed us around. Sheep, we had a ram, so sheep then do what sheep and rabbits etc. do, and our little flock of six started to become a little bigger flock and a little bigger flock, and um, we've really gone from there. And we're lambing at the moment. We've got one more ewe to lamb this year, um, who hopefully isn't doing that at the moment. And um, well, to give you an idea. Um, This might be quite an interesting one for for Sam to pick up, I don't know. But to give you an idea, Richard has been up every night for the last 12 days now, just checking the years for lambing. Um, We we got up at six o'clock this morning, which isn't unusual because we all do a couple of hours before we start any work. And we finished last night at nine o'clock when it was just starting to get dark because we did the dams and the horses at the same time. Um, and obviously, all our weekends are, are taken up with doing farm-related stuff. Not always sheep, to be honest. They don't always take a lot of time. So,
0: yeah, we go. Thank you, Alison. This sounds uh, very interesting in both your cases, because is this about serious leisure or serious labour <laughs> that you're involved with on an ongoing basis? So, before we get into that side of things, um my question really is, and you have touched upon this, both of you, a little bit. But I really want to unpack what's the appeal and what's the benefit um, to you. Um, can we start with Amanda, please? So you talked about the appeal in terms of in anticipation of the, the experience buying, buying a horse and looking after the horse. But what's the appeal and benefit
3: of having a horse? Um. I guess that I love spending time with them, basically, is what it comes down to. So I find it very, mostly relaxing, but very all-encompassing being with a horse. So when you're with a horse, because they're sensitive to emotions, you need to be able to switch off from all the stuff that's been going off in the day and kind of down-regulate yourself in a way. I'm not good at anything like mindfulness, so I find that very difficult. But if I'm with an animal that weighs I don't know, getting on for 90 stone and I'm aware that she's picking up on my stress, that is a good motivation to kind of calm down my breathing and to calm myself down. Um, I just like one example was last night after I'd ridden Blossom, I was untacking her and she does this thing where she loves her ears scratched like a cat. Um, And there's just something lovely about having this huge, great big animal just bend its head towards you one side and then the other side and then really like demonstrate that it just wants a really, really good scratch. And there's those sort of moments where you feel that you're in communication um, with her. Um, I think the fact that horses are all different, is just it just makes me smile and laugh because they all have those different quirks, different personalities and different ways of showing what they want. Um, I think there's also the thing of mastery that with riding and horses, there's always something to learn. It's not something that you ever stop learning. And it almost feels like the more you learn, the more there is to learn um and I guess for someone who likes learning that's quite important um and those odd moments where something goes right and you think yeah I've got that I've got her working like I want her to go um that's worked are just so satisfying so I think there's all of all of that really um and just that it it kind of takes up a lot of mental energy I quite like because I don't have children I don't have a job that I want to think about outside of work particularly so it's a sort of thing to focus on I know that I don't know that probably sounds really weird um and it's an identity as well um I think definitely um but I don't know what it is with kind of girls women and horses there's just a, a thing there that you probably can't quite put your finger on as to why it is that horses are so attractive and so all-encompassing um and I yeah I don't know Alison might have more to say about why that why that is that they they can kind of easily take up so much time and money and effort and heartache and still be worth it um, because people who don't get horses don't get that.
0: Thank you, Amanda. I think that's um, quite an interesting ex- exposition of an answer you just you just gave gave us, and um, you um, you kind of threw the question back at uh, at Alison about. <laughs> the question why <laughs> and um i am I, I also know that sam would have a lot to unpack in your answer uh, but uh, let's just move on to alison and and just see see alison how would you respond to amanda's question
4: well i could uh sit and talk horses to amanda all day um because like amanda <laughs> they they take up our lives we've got three and we're buying another one because obviously you can't have enough horses in your life. Um, but there we go. And they're all very different personalities. Um, and, and I completely, utterly get the physicality of it. We've got um, a cobby boy and we've got a full Arab dragon in the yard um and and then one in the middle um and it is it is that that caring for them as well and that responsibility and that responsibility is there for the sheep as well as the horses it's there for for us in 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 everything that we do and it, it, it is that responsibility as that if I don't go and look after those sheep or look after that horse or whatever nobody else is going to well my daughter will in in this case but you know if I cajole her um with the sheep not with the horses but uh uh, it's it is that um, you Sometimes like, well, I've been talking ab- about this with my husband. Actually, is like why why are we doing this? <laughs> and he sort of looked at me and said, um, "I I don't know really. I just because we enjoy it." And I said, Do "We enjoy it when it's blowing a northeasterly gale and it's sleeting and it's horizontal." Um, but we, we do enjoy it. And on on, on the why, with the sheep, certainly. The sheep have personalities as well. I mean, I think people can maybe understand horses having personalities in the same way that if you've got cats or dogs, you know your cat or your dog has got a personality. The horse definitely have personalities. But I don't think I was particularly prepared for the sheep having personalities when we got sheep. I thought they'd just be sheep, really. And they do. And what's so lovely about... Um, the ewes and and certainly with the lambs at the moment is that the lambs will play. um, and so when it gets the sort of early evening, the lambs will start to just run around the fields and play with each other. So the ewes will be eating, and they'll just go on like a little bunch of kids and they'll jump onto anything whether it, at the moment it's a log that's out there but it's been up and feed troughs and stuff before and one will jump on and it's almost like they're playing I'm the king of the castle The so one will jump on and jump off and then another one will jump on and jump off and they they are quite clearly playing and there was a lovely moment we had one lamb early this year because we're despite we're still learning as Amanda said I don't think you ever stop and despite the fact we've been doing this for 18 years now we're not a very good one. <laughs> we try um but we had one lamb early um so he's he hasn't had any friends to play with he's quite big now um and we put him in with the other lambs and he was playing with them and it was so sweet because i've not seen him properly play before uh and that was really really nice to see um so yeah the the, the lambs are very cute the other thing they do which i think surprises people is um they stand on top of the ewes, so if the ewes are lying down, well, they, they sort of sit down a bit like a cat does or a dog does, you know, this sort of sphinx-like. Um, and um, the lambs will jump onto their backs, uh, mainly if it's cold, they'll they'll go on for warmth. And the ewes also look after each other, so you'll get one ewe, who will be looking after sort of three or four lambs, uh, because especially some of the younger ones just wander off, um, so they leave it with with granny um and, and granny looks after them so um yeah they every year I think why why are we lambing um but then when we do lamb it's worth it it's worth uh six o'clock in the morning and uh, getting up at midnight to make sure they're okay so I think that's why we do it thank you Alison. <laughs>
0: it's, it's always an interesting conversation when we're passionate about something and you sit down and say Why am I doing this? And I've actually thought about it, it just feels right. Um, But to actually name how and why it feels right, um, it can be difficult. Talking about naming things, I know Sam has a lot to unpack in the two stories we've heard thus far. Um, And I wonder what Sam thinks of this, um, for these two examples. how and if they fit with the serious leisure pursuit, given the nature of what we're discussing today? Sam?
2: Yeah, you might have noticed. I've been frantically writing some notes down here. It's, yep. it's really, really interesting. I, there's not, from what I can draw out of my, my uh, kind of awareness of the serious leisure perspective, Uh, a great deal written on this in terms of a a kind of a designated area of serious leisure. But, you know, in terms of trying to make some sense of this, if you like, as a core activity or the the different, because obviously both examples are quite different, although, you know, livestock are at the the centre, you know. um, And I think um, you both mentioned, you know, the caring and responsibility aspect is something that's very strong um and that certainly comes through in in how you're um how you're talking but actually in terms of both of the examples they are quite different in the sense that you know so so for for Amanda and Alison you know if we're talking about serious leisure there's typically three types so we've got the the amateur leisure pursuits which typically have professional counterparts but you know we as amateurs we're not We're not working in that professional capacity. Hobbyists who uh, tend to be activity participants, but with no kind of amateur equivalence to to save. And then you've got the volunteers. Um, So volunteer, you know, the altruistic nature of volunteering. Um, There is another one which I'll get to because I think that's where one of these sits. But I, I, I would certainly think in terms of Amanda... You know, the, it certainly strikes me as a as a hobbyist activity. It's a hobby, in the sense that, you know, I know there are competitive elements to horse riding, but that from the narrative you've told me, that's not part of why you do what you do. It, is that is that true,
3: or is, um, is there an element of that? I I guess I'm very aware when I'm riding that a lot of people at the yard where I ride are serious competitors and compete for wales or you know at a national level um i have competed at a much lower level with my previous horse and i partly bought blossom my current horse because she has a she's sort of been trained to do dressage and she's Mm. a potential competition horse um obviously in the middle of a pandemic that's been really on the back burner um so although i'd never see myself as a professional competitor in any way shape or form the competing is definitely part of what I want to do, okay. um, and there is that, I guess sometimes really uncomfortable comparison when I ride against uh, alongside riders who are professionals or much more professional than me. I'm mm-hmm. um, competing at a high level. That there's that comparison of yes, I'm just the hobbyist with my um, big hairy cob, um, and they've got their lovely competition horses. Although mine's lovely as well, but there's so that that can be quite an uncomfortable place. I think does that make mm-hmm. sense? No, I
2: I do in terms of that social context that you you operate in. In terms of the yard, so to speak. Kat, do you want to come in there?
1: I was just going to say that I think we encounter this interesting difficulty that w- with serious leisure, with the serious leisure perspective, because I, Amanda, I really noted that you said um, you've described that situation as uncomfortable, and you've just talked about yourself as just a hobbyist. You're basically kind of diminishing what mm-hmm. it is, mm. and I think this is the challenge because we can think somehow that if what we're doing isn't the same as what a professional is doing or whatever, that somehow, you know, it's lacking in some way or it's falling short of whatever that might be. Um, which actually, if we think about it, uh, if we're thinking about somebody else and what they were doing, like, for example, I'm listening to what you're describing and what you've achieved with Blossom and your passion for horses, and it's not even in my mind. They're like, what? I can't believe you just, you know, ride her around and you're not a professional. And that's not even on my radar. No what you're doing is so fascinating and meaningful for you and the meaning making that you're doing comes across as you speak but I think a challenge we all have for our own leisure pursuits can be that we diminish them and we reduce them in some way or we put ourselves in this uncomfortable space mm. of describe because we're not as good as I don't know, even the idea of not as good as what's the point of this You know, it's, mm. I, I say this as, as a, you know, in my own experience as a, Um just wanted to mention that I definitely don't see anything mm. you describe as only this or not as much mm. as that no I think we, we have
2: to uh, try and be kinder to ourselves don't we this yeah I, I think what's really interesting there Kat it, it, absolutely I think you know it's that kind of the default state with m- many leisure activities it's it's othering the othering nature of leisure you know it's it's other to other to or other than you know work or or whatever else and professional counterparts that what I was getting at Amanda was obviously you know the the you, you keep the horse in a, in a stable that stable is part of a broader kind of uh context and is clearly you know you know a, a racing or competitive nature to to the yard so you know that that counterpoint for you you know that comparison is always there or in a way but certainly in the way that you've described um uh, you know your the nature of your pursuit and why you why you do what you do and, and obviously clearly so passionate about it. You know you've talked about mastery, although it's not mastery necessarily in a competitive element. It's mastery of, you know, just being able to ride mm. a you know uh, an animal, you know, in in a certain way, and you know there's certain techniques and everything else. But also you start thinking about some of the benefits that you glean from that. You talked about the the clear you know obviously um, animal therapy is huge. Mm you know that's that started to happen just before pandemic for our own institution where we used to have uh, different animals come onto campus for example uh, uh, so we recognize this has been beneficial to our well-being but i what i really liked about what you were saying there was around your identity the you know the the attachment you have to the core activity of you know caring for and having responsibility for the horse but uh, but also what that then means for your own identity work as well so and how yeah I, I kind of want to be able to go and do that competitive thing but on my own terms mm. which makes it kind of a um, you know it still very much sits within for me it sits within the hobbyist kind of uh, realm of serious leisure but kind of maybe a, hob- a, a hobbyist sport uh, and a previous podcast we talked about um, fly fishing and it's a similar kind of thing there. And there's specialisations and you you could do dressage, dressage and, and a number of different activities within that. But so I, I certainly see that. But it's fundamentally hobbyist activity born out of that, you know, that self-interest. You know, it's, it's nothing for anybody else. It's just about me. You know, this is this is this is what this means to me. This is what it's all about. Now, on the flip side because uh, I'm wary of time. You've went on for, I mean, I've got about 14 pages of notes, so we haven't got that kind of time. But um, so in many ways, Alison, your, your narrative's similar, you know, in terms of, you know, that self-interest and and some of the benefits that you, you glean out of out of what you do, and um, obviously still come to grips with why you do what you do, I think, clearly. <laughs> but that's a journey, isn't it? And this idea of a, um, a we, we find a career in our in our in our le- uh, serious leisure pursuits, um, you can certainly see those you know the the stages of career with Amanda in terms of you know early participant participation would have been you know uh, very much as a, a neophyte learner, and now you know you've you've kept a number of horses. You may be more towards kind of the you know, the expert end of that the continuum. What we have in the serious leisure perspective that I think fits with what Alison was saying is it's the idea of devotee work, which is where because um, clearly, what tipped it for me was you know, you, you've bought this, <laughs> you say small holding, 60 plus acres is not a small holding. I don't care what anybody says. For me, that's the entire Chester Street town. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a big old space, but you know, it's still got to pay for itself. So, there's an element of ge- income generation there. Um, but when we talk about devotee work, we're still talking about that self-interest and a, a strong positive attachment to the core activity of looking after animals and looking after the land. Um, but essentially it's serious leisure that's found in gainful employment. So you know, you just happen to be making a living or a part of a living at least in order to keep doing what you're doing. So it's a kind of a self-fulfilling process. So if I was to position, Alison, your, your narrative, it would be this idea of devotee work you know because there is a work component to it you found and it but it's it you do it in the explanation of why you do what you do it wasn't to earn the money it was to be in nature it was to be uh in in the in this space with these animals doing this work um you just happen to be making some money to enable you to keep doing that so you know that's my very coarse attempt at positioning the different narratives. There's there's so much in there. Um, I mean, I, I particularly like the, you both mentioned attachment, but in different in different ways. So attachment to core activity. So when we talk about serious leisure, there's a core activity to just about all serious leisure. You know, at the core, it's about this. And, and Amanda, it's about being with your horse in that. But then there's also place attachment. Yeah, so you both have to go, or you know, if you're Alison, you live at that place. But you know, and Amanda, I guess you could argue pretty much live there as well, but you know, th- there is an attachment to a place as well, which importantly is other than other places, i.e., of work and everything else. So I wonder a question then to, to, to relay back to both of you, and Amanda, if I could come to you first, you know, in terms of that attachment. And that place, what it what is it about that 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 really um, really draws you in?
3: Um, I mean it's interesting because I tried a lot of different stables before I ended up. I live in Bristol, and I ride in South Wales, and people often ask me why I choose to to live thirty miles away from where I keep my horse, and a lot of it is to do with that particular yard, the people who are there, the fact that although there's actually some very, very accomplished people that I don't ever feel judged by anyone else. I feel deeply judged by myself, but I feel nothing but positivity from other people. And I think that can be quite unusual in the horse world, which can be quite a judgy world. It can be a world where people are maybe very good with animals, but not good with people, um, to put it mildly. Um, So I feel very safe there. I feel very able to ask questions as comparatively a new person to this world although I've been in it all my life I'm still considered new um I feel it's a place that yeah I just feel very at home and during the first lockdown when I was sort of didn't have access to it that was incredibly hard because it's my my place where I get out the car and I instantly feel yeah I'm home almost um I guess I've been going there for seven years so I've built up fairly deep relationships to people, to the stable cat, to other horses that aren't actually my horse. Um, and it's a place where work or my day job doesn't exist to a large extent um, as well. And I just love the smells, the sights, the like there's bats flitting around, there's swallows. There's that, you know, I live in the, mid- the middle of Bristol. I don't have that seasonality in my day to day life, um, but I have that when I go to the stable. I also like that it's a world that includes the weather it includes those northeasterly gales it includes hard physical labor which again I don't get in my day-to-day job so and I wouldn't keep my horse anywhere else um Mm. and that can feel quite difficult because there's that question of do I keep her there because it's best for me or because it's best for her
2: that is a wonderful question I mean, is that are you asking yourself that question or is that
3: <laughs> I sold my previous horse because it was the wrong place to keep her so I sold her back to a home that was more suitable for her because right. the home that the stables that worked for me wasn't working for her yeah yeah
2: that's really interesting because I because I'm hearing that there's clearly a, a unique kind of social world to that stable which then gives you what you need or at least you've developed a relationship to that space and that social world that has allowed you to ben- you know, glean those benefits, um, but you've got somebody else to think about as mm. well, you know, and that's really, really interesting. Cat, do you want to come in there?
1: Yes, that, that was exactly what I was just going to comment on. Actually, that, that this for me is the most striking difference in terms of um, the focus of this this podcast episode from what we've looked at before, because. <laughs> the, the the activities you're describing feature the subject of your leisure is <laughs> a personality or personalities you know who have got their own ideas and ways of being right um, which I think completely changes what the experience is. I, I was struck firstly Amanda by your description of you going to the stable and you touched on identity and it seemed to me almost as if actually that part of you that connects with your horse uh, transcends any of your other identities, and in a way has almost taken on a... feels like your true identity when you're talking, mm-hmm. if you don't mind me putting it that way, you know, um, which is really interesting because we think of leisure as like a tack-on, right? Or as a, a side plate to the main order of what we're meant to be doing. But actually, the way you've described it, in a way, your leisure activity isn't, feels like feels like who you truly are. Mm-hmm. And the other things you have to do is the side plate. I'm mm-hmm. like putting up with living in a city and yeah. stuff like that, you know, which, which is really interesting and, and a very different framing. Um, and I think for me, I feel as if the, the presence of these personalities of your horse and Alison, and all the animals you've described with your sheep and your horses and your dogs and cats um, brings a different level of emotional investment because there's these central relationships at the heart of what's happening and I think often in our, our previous discussions about serious leisure we talk about the important relationships are often about our peers you know with like someone we're going fly fishing with or someone I'm making music with or something like that but but interestingly in this context the significant relationship is with the subject of the leisure activity <laughs> it was also not a human <laughs> you know? and so you've got the responsibility you have to do this caring aspect I just find this very interesting because in a way that leisure will hold its space. And like many of us have had to surrender different leisure activities because of COVID. You know, we haven't been able to see people. I can't make music. I can't go and do my choirs and stuff. I just can't. But you have these individuals who are dependent. So you set your life up around to make that possible. Um, But then you've both talked about the fact that you have to go and care for them anyway. And so in a way, it kind of secures that leisure in your life like no one's going to take that from you are they because those animals need you and so you'll be there for them i just just found this very interesting and a very different emphasis from this kind of take it or leave it thing that is usually the case with leisure and often why often many of us might leave it you know because we let it get squeezed out but yours is well fenced in because it's owned by living creatures you know Um, So actually, I was leading to a question about this after after my monologue, which was um, I actually wanted to ask Amanda whether that description of identity and for you, Alison, as well, does that resonate with you? That sense of a sort of a primary identity, a sort of salient identity, which is more about this this contact with your horse, with your animals and where you live. Or perhaps maybe you'd like to clarify that for me and explain it better from inside. For me, Um,
3: absolutely. it's my identity and yeah I mean that's I I think probably most of my friends probably wish it wasn't quite such a big part of my identity because they're they're probably not that interested in my horse Um, and my partner you know it takes up a huge amount of time Um, I think possibly because I haven't maybe had such a defined career path as some people so I don't have that sense of yes I'm an expert in this or I'm a real have this real mastery over a particular subject like um I don't know possibly Alison does so there's that that sense of yeah my job pays the wages I find it very interesting I enjoy it but I don't identify as a student caseworker that's not not how I think of myself um identify myself as someone who has a horse um primarily um yeah and that that is is how I see my identity um and that feels like an identity that I've had since I was a child even though I didn't have a horse I kind of identified that I should have had
1: if that makes sense Alison would you like to would you like to comment on that for me
4: um yeah I can I completely understand that and I, I it's interesting as we've been talking I'm also looking at my family members as well because obviously we're all in this together um and seeing different identities I completely get the identity with the horses. I think my identity with horses has been going on since I was a child, you know a child as well. Um, so oh. I, and I see that identity with my sixteen year old. My sixteen year old is the the, the horse one, um, and her identity is absolutely around those horses. Um, we we do have competition horses, but we've kind of grown with them, if that makes sense. Um, and and they are seen as each one of them is a team. So it's, so Team Hurry is Martha and Hurry, and he is a very, very different team to Team Matt, who's the grouchy dragon one, uh, who's a very different team to Team Bob, who is Martha and Bob, um, who's the, the copy one. Um, and I, I think maybe that gives you a, an idea of that, that difference. Uh, we don't particularly have Team Sheep. They are different. Um, <laughs> I don't have team, team Number 7 or Team Number 8 because they're numbered, so we know which years go with which lambs. Um, but they do have uh, names um, quite often. We we name a lot of them, and you can tell them apart. Um, but just thinking about the the identity, um, yeah, I do. I think have an identity as a smallholder. We're not, we're not farms because we don't have the the big farms. You know, the three hundred acre pluses. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Something you said earlier on about you know there's not there's nothing small about sixty five acres. Uh, it's it's basically uh, too small to make any money and too big to not do something weird. That's the problem with it. Um, but I think what's quite interesting is I, I had horses on livery for a, for a long time before we moved to the farm. And, and when we got here, I suddenly realised that there were big gaps in my knowledge. I actually know what I was doing. Um, and the what I find now is the blurring. I used to keep my horse an hour and a half away from where I used to live. I used to live in Winchester, I kept her at West Wales. Um, But now it's a blurring because I don't have anywhere to get away from I don't have a livery yard to go to it's it's lovely um it's the same with the sheep I don't have somewhere to go to see them they're here I mean literally in the house if I don't shut the door if they happen to be out in the garden um and and while that is absolutely lovely it's also a draw and sometimes it's it's a little bit like having kids you know if for example we're in the middle of this if the sheep get out or the horses get out then I, I if, or if I'm teaching I have to go and do something about it because it's an animal um you know it's uh, it's so that blurring is quite interesting um the um the identity I don't know whether uh it's just worth saying that my husband is, I say, a say, consultant radiologist. I think he sees himself far more as a farmer than he does a doctor because I think that's where he would. He loves being a doctor, but he would he's happiest when he's messing about on the farm. Thank you, Alison. Um, that's
0: well. Everything has been so fascinating to, to listen to. But I think in your last comment, you alluded to some of the difficulties in all of this because as Amanda told us earlier, nothing is quite as you imagined it or or you imagined it as a little girl having a pony. Um, We have about five minutes left and I really want to talk about the nitty gritty of all this in the the five five minutes, the difficulty that exists in both your pursuits and the difficulty that you ignore (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and pursue on regardless um so amanda alison you already touched upon some, some some of that in terms of the the lack of separation and sometimes becomes too much juggling both at this at the same time i wonder what the difficulties are for amanda
3: i think for me a lot of the difficulty is around guilt and the balance of my life and my horse life um, I keep my horse a delivery stable so I have days when I pay someone else to care for her basically um, which I end up feeling quite guilty about but then I also feel quite guilty when I'm at the stable and I'm ignoring my partner. Um, so there's this big huge demand uh, of the horse and the guilt of, of not always being able to meet her needs even though I know she doesn't really care who meets her needs. Um, I think there is that that sense that actually I guess a lot of being with a horse is hard work and I don't really see that as a difficulty. I think the tiredness can be hard, like, you know, I got home, I don't know, quarter to ten last night um, and that's regular throughout the week, Um, not every day, but it's common. Um, I think the sort of weariness you get sometimes when you find that you need to do the hay nets and you have to go and find a Stanley knife and open a bale of hay in the freezing cold and the pouring rain, and it's really late and the horses has started kicking the stable door and, it's, and you just feel absolutely exhausted because um, you've already worked a full day, um, I think that can be difficult. I think for me the self-comparison and the feeling I haven't got as good mastery as I want is really difficult and that's probably the hardest. Um, I think the other thing that's really hard is that a horse can go fantastically one day or one minute and then it can just act like it's not been ridden before. Or act like it's about to die, or you know, it's just like, and that can be so infuriating. And particularly my old horse, she used to leave staff members who rode her in tears because she could just be so stubborn and so contrary, and you just, and that leaves you feeling awful about yourself because you're thinking, I can't do this, and it takes all my time and money, and I can't do it. And I think for me, that's the hardest bit. I don't, at the end of the day, mind the gales and the horse poo and the that stuff it's that sense of when that relationship isn't going well is the really hard thing um that's the hardest thing is for me and I think I haven't been there yet but if I was had a horse in it was the end of its life that would be very hard um you know when animals ill that's hard when I had to sell my previous horse because what I could provide wasn't what she needed that was really hard um so I think those for me are the really difficult things um and I can spend far more time worrying about my horse than I do about work. That's the difficulty for me. So it's the flip side of this lovely relationship is that it's also can be a really tricky
4: relationship.
2: Alison, did you want to comment on that just quickly?
4: Yeah. And I will try and steer away from the horse stuff. I was nodding um, to, to everything Amanda was saying. And, and sometimes certainly my younger daughter will come in and say, oh, if you just meet me a quarter of the way, that would be so nice. Um so yeah, if you think about 20 20 dog and, and multiply it uh a lot, I think. Um so with us um with the, the sheep and the farm in general really, um it's it is physical, it is um being out in the cold and the wet and looking for yeah, you know, the Stanley knife to do whatever it is you're doing, trying to get to the fees, trying to uh it's ice on the on the buckets which is the key thing i remember posting a, a picture of one of those lovely chilly mornings in february on our group we have a group chat in our team at work and um and i knew what happened I was going, oh isn't it lovely isn't it amazing i was utterly freezing my hands were frozen my feet were freezing and i was standing on buckets uh water troughs trying to break the ice for the sheep the horses were fine because their stuff's insulated um but the sheep troughs are out in the middle of the fields and then looking for something to try and break the ice with Thinking, oh why why but it was a beautiful morning and I wouldn't have gone out in that morning if I hadn't have had to go around and break the ice on the sheep buckets um so with the sheep it is cold it is um it is difficult when we lose one we're do too badly this year but we lost a couple of lambs and it's heartbreaking when that happens um so it's, it, 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 if you, you know, if you have livestock, you have dead stock. And that's, it is awful. Uh, and you have to be prepared for that, I think. Um, but those are the key things. The sheep are pretty good.
2: Okay, wonderful. No, uh, so just bringing all that together, I mean, this more so, I think, than any previous podcast. I and mean, I don't know if Petty and Cattle uh, agree with me here, but you, you've been talking about how hard it is in terms of you know I and mean, we use the word labour but actually what what I'm hearing here is this idea of emotional labour which is really front and centre you know it's there's an emotional labour to this um to this the, the core activities of, of both of your narratives and I think more so than perhaps any other any other podcast we've done so far I think that's very much down to the nature of the activities, but through that emotional labour and because of that emotional labour, you know we get a clear. There's a commitment there to keep going, to persevere, even because of those challenges, even because of the weather or you know the, because the horse isn't behaving itself or whatever. You know that perseverance is there, um, but also that you know to to improve, to to do better, to be better, whether that be mastery in terms of riding the horse or to to manage the farm better you know to 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 receive better rewards back from the land so to speak so i think as a, as an overarching kind of summary comment for me that that idea of emotional labour has really come through quite profoundly for me. Um, I can see you both nodding there for everybody's benefit. I think there's a, there's, there's a clear there's a clear sense that that's central to, to both of those uh, both of those narratives. But it's been really really interesting. I think so different to what we've had up till this point, and and yet and and, and completely unashamedly so in terms of clear. Uh, clear commitment to well you know I actually identify as this first as opposed to anything else and I think that's uh, a a healthy a healthy um, alternative interpretation as well so really 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 interesting thank you so much for sharing your stories
0: Thank you, Sam, for your commentary. This has been a fascinating podcast. We have come to an end. We can clearly talk about this for hours and hours more. I would like to take this opportunity to thank uh, our contributors today, our guests, Amanda Headley White and Alison Miles, and to thank Sam for his uh, Elkington for his expertise, and to um, thank Hat Branch for her questions and insights that she brought to this conversation. And to thank for Helga Ganestadir, who's patiently waited um, doing the recording today, um, and who's uh, also helping with our um, edits. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. And until our next episode, when we talk about how we take our leisure seriously. Goodbye, everyone. <music>